0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today, we will be talking to Janice Powers. She is here today to talk about her new book, Healthcare, Meet the American Dream. Janice, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Would you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I have been a healthcare strategy and operations consultant for the majority of my career. I started doing hospital mergers in the mid-90s with Deloitte. I actually majored in architecture at Yale, and I got an MBA and a Master of Architecture from the University of Michigan, and I was able to kind of parlay the design uh, and business aspects of architecture when I joined Deloitte to help hospitals come together, like I said, in the mid-90s. From that experience, I analyzed every department inside a hospital all over the country to understand you know, how to bring the two together. So we were answering questions like where should we put which surgical services you know how should we combine radiology what are the utilization levels and it was really terrific because it just helped me understand not only how the hospitals run but the entire continuum of care so basically every patient experience from when they registered and called for an appointment, which now a lot of people do online, uh, all the way through to sort of clinical resolution, You know, whether it was being discharged from the hospital or going to a skilled nursing facility and being discharged uh, to home from there. And I, I've just loved the healthcare industry, but the the interesting thing is I've never actually worked for a hospital. I've never worked for the government. I've never worked for an insurance company. So I've always had this external sort of independent view of the healthcare system, which has really helped me when I was writing the book, have this objective sort of original view on the industry.
0: So what inspired you to write Healthcare Meet the American Dream?
1: Um, I love to solve problems. And I think we all understand that there are a lot of problems with the healthcare system. I have always looked at things, I, maybe it's with because of the architecture degree, um, a little more comprehensively, and I like to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. And I am a big fan of efficiency. And when you look at the healthcare system, there are just tons of inefficiencies and things that don't make sense. And over the years, I have been trying to make sense of it and talk about it in a you know, a different way from just saying, you know, here's the latest policy that's come out and here's my reaction to it. It's sort of like, well, you know, value bases come out a- come out just because it's the policy, is that the best thing? Is it right or wrong? And why? So I'd say about the last five or six years, I spent a lot of time writing articles in a variety of media outlets. I actually had a stint on the Huffington Post. Um, writing not just about healthcare, but international uh, socioeconomic issues. My first article was about, it was called, uh, Thank You, Beirut, Your Friend Dubai. Uh, It was all about how terrific I thought the culture of Lebanon was. Um, So I've sort of been all over the map, literally. Um, But every time I wrote about something, I would take a different perspective and talk about things kind of in a different way. I realized that my career was in healthcare. Uh, I had shifted to consulting in the outpatient space, uh, focusing on ambulatory surgery centers, which I think is a terrific area to work in, uh, just because it's great for low cost, high quality patient satisfaction. It's like kind of hits all three of those. But I wrote a lot for healthcare journals, uh, hospitals and health networks, healthcare financial management. And it was very gratifying. You know, it's great to be published. And uh, I just thought, okay, at some point I need to put all these ideas together and kind of go beyond just having a commentary with a different viewpoint and and start to come up with an answer, another idea. And so I scaled back from focusing on article writing and took a few years uh, to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And here we are with Healthcare Meet the American Dream.
0: At the beginning of the book, you talk about how uh, emergency rooms are American healthcare at its best and at its worst. Can you please talk about that for our listeners?
1: So, uh, this is a great way for me to have kicked off the book because it talks about all the different aspects of healthcare, um, and because they all—all all the the best and the worst—is uh, sort of manifests when you hit the ER. I mean, it's great because. The United States provides, quality-wise, the best healthcare in the world. Um, you know, if you're really sick and something's really wrong, you want to be here. And when you get to an emergency room, you get access to all of that high-quality care on demand. You know, obviously, it's going to be better for you in an urban center than it is in a rural hospital, but you just get terrific, terrific care. the um, The challenge, of course, is that hospitals legally have to provide this care through MTLA, the law that says that if a patient presents and they need medical care, then care has to be provided regardless of whether they can pay. And this has been a drain on hospitals for sure. So it's sort of a a regulatory demand put on the facilities that incense some really bad behavior. Uh, So this is sort of the negative side. So hospitals have to recoup the uh, the cost of care that they deliver because they don't get directly reimbursed for it. So they're angling. They get uh, disproportionate share payments from Medicaid, and those are the you may have heard of them, they're called DISH payments. These are payments that come from Medicaid that go to hospitals that provide a lot of care to the underserved or un- uninsured. So they can get reimbursed kind of sort of indirectly uh, through that mechanism. But then hospitals of late have been advertising to have people come to their facilities. You may have seen this around your community. Uh, There are ads in magazines. There are billboards. Some of them have the actual time that it will take for you to wait in the ER, which is incense you to show up like it's a clinic, which it's not. And that is some of the challenging behavior that drives up costs in the system because, of course, anyone who's gone to an ER gets stuck with this bill, typically, that is astronomical and incomprehensible in a lot of ways. And you know if you get a bill from a provider, I think a lot of us have been attuned to wait a few months until things sort of flow through our insurance company to see what's actually going to get covered. But the fact that we get that bill early is an indicator of sort of aggressive collections tactics, because a lot of people don't understand that they need to wait and they may just pay Um, So we've got those things going on. We have a phenomenon called a balanced billing problem. And this is a case where you may show up at a hospital and you'll know that the hospital is part of your insurance plan. You know, you're in a desperate state. You're seen by a doctor. You know, you're not going to call your insurance company and see if Dr. Smith is covered under your insurance company. The assumption is because you've gone to the hospital that that doctor's part of the plan too, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, And when that happens, because the doctor contracts separately with the insurance company, um, you may get stuck with a big bill for the doctor that's at a rate much higher than what would have been paid if the doctor had negotiated their rates with your insurance company. And when you pay something like that, it's called paying out of network. So you basically don't have access to the negotiated rates and you get slapped with this big bill. Um, and there's been a lot of legislation, a lot of discussion around trying to fix that. It's just such a challenge because of how contracting happens, you know. And as more doctors become employees of hospitals, I think we'll see that abate a little bit. But you know, the, I, I don't think that we're going to go to full employment of doctors in hospitals. So we'll still have a balanced billing problem. So there are a lot of challenges. And then the big one is people sort of abuse the ER. They show up when they have um, a fever. And it's a a situation that's really understandable because we've all been in it. My daughter was in a bus accident when she was in middle school. And it's this experience we all have. It's like, you know, there you show up at the scene. It's on an interstate highway. It's a school bus with a couple of other cars. The kids are being whisked off to the ER. I'm looking at my daughter. She's got this contusion the size of a baseball on her leg. Of course I want to take her to the ER. You know, I've got a friend who's a radiologist. And I called him up and I said, you know, this is what's happening. And he goes, well, can she walk? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, then it's it's probably not broken, which logically should tell me I shouldn't go to the ER. I should just wait, ice it, call her doctor and, you know, make an appointment to go in the next day. But as a terrified parent, like everyone around me, when the cops are there questioning everyone, you know, you go to the ER and it wasn't broken But it was a relief for me to go, should I have gone? Should I have not gone? And those are the questions that really patients and their families shouldn't be asked, right? Because not everybody has a friend who's a radiologist, and it's not my job to diagnose my daughter. That's the provider's job. But the fact that she was not a severe case, but she was still seen in the ER, I still get slapped with a big bill, or at least my insurance company did, for looking out for her. And I talk at the end of this chapter about this concept called a fast track, which uh, I think would be a great idea to put in emergency rooms. And that's where you basically triage the people who show up into truly emergent cases and those like my daughters or like you know the infant who's got a fever, um, maybe not the infant, maybe the toddler with a fever. And, you know, you say, okay, you guys wait over here in more of a clinic type setting. It's going to be lower cost. You're going to wait a little bit, but it's not an emergency case. So we're not going to, the rates aren't going to be as high as they would be over here. That would be an ideal situation or an ideal solution to try and fix some of this stuff. But the implementation of that just faces a ton of challenges with regulations and then facility costs for separating it out and then you know, of course, people not understanding the system and wanting care right away. So the ER
0: is just fraught with challenges. Can we talk a little bit about healthcare spending in America? In the book, you said that it has created a serious financial crisis. Can you please explain this for our listeners?
1: Sure. Um, so in 2017, the United States spent $3.5 trillion in healthcare. And that's an all-in figure that includes all the over-the-counter stuff and what hospitals spend insurance companies uh, on healthcare. About a third of that was spent by hospitals. About half of it is spent by the government. And that's for the Medicare and Medicaid programs. And those numbers have been rising. So we expect healthcare spend to rise as the population increases, which it has been. But it's also been rising on a per capita basis, which means that over time, we're spending more money per person which means that somehow the the system is, you know, we're just spending more and more and more. The problem is money is a finite thing, but when the federal government doesn't balance its budget and we keep spending more and more money and go beyond what the budgets are, um, then we have to borrow money. And we have to borrow money and we have to cut or not grow other parts of what the federal government or the state governments or local governments fund. So that's related to pensions, infrastructure, defense, all of these things uh, are getting sort of choked because our healthcare spending is increasing. And what's even more of a problem is another chunk of the federal government spend is on interest payments for all the loans we've taken out. And as interest rates start to increase, which they've started to do, those, the the interest payments are going to get more expensive, which means they're going to be a bigger part of the budget, which means there's less money to spend on everything else when our healthcare costs are rising. So we're reaching this point where it's just this major conflict that from a budgetary perspective is bordering on financial irresponsibility. And, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get this under control.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the history of healthcare policy in America And ultimately, what is the current state of of American healthcare policy and how did it get so complicated?
1: Yeah, well, I could talk about this for about an hour, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's important to, um, you know, to recognize a couple of major milestones. Uh, First of all, health insurance actually started around World War II with the Stabilization Act. And this was um, a result of the fact that so many men, mostly men, were off fighting the war, And the men who were back at home, you know, there was a lot of competition for them. And so the government was concerned that wages were just going to go out of control. So they put a cap, sort of, they wanted to stabilize them. So employers had to come up with another way to attract employees, and they started offering health insurance. And that's how this whole, you know, employer subsidized health insurance model that we rely so heavily on today Got started, and I should say that half of their Americans get their health insurance through their employer. Um, of course, we had the rollout of Medicare and Medicaid um, that was under LBJ, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, and um, you know that was sort of the, the beginning of public health. And it's interesting; I mean, it seems so natural to us, but India is just starting to come up with a Medicaid-type program. They didn't have anything, so um you know these programs have been around for over a generation medicare is the program that provides healthcare a portion of healthcare coverage for seniors 65 and older and medicaid is for um you know the the generally the poor and the disabled so those pro- programs are rolled out and but what's happened over the years is that there have be, there haven't been landmarks like that until the affordable care act in 2010 but in between during that period, a lot of other laws came into place. Um, You know, we started funding federally qualified health clinics, SHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which has bipartisan support, all kinds of expansions to Medicaid, Part D under uh, President Bush, um, that's George W. Bush, that was covered prescription drugs for the Medicare enrollees. I mean, obviously, that's a big deal now with the cost of pharmaceuticals. So these programs have continued, uh, these policies have continued to be enacted and they can be a little out of date. Um, When you look at Medicaid, for example, Medicaid covers uh, nursing home coverage, but it doesn't cover any of the kind of neat new age in place technologies that are available. And nursing home coverage can run about $85,000 a year. So we have this sort of legacy policy that's in place And we're tight on money, and we really need to think a lot more about historically the cumulative effect of all of these drugs, or not all these drugs, of all of these uh, policies and how it's impacting our budgets. And then, of course, we've got the Affordable Care Act, like I said, in 2010, whose goal was to provide universal coverage for all Americans uh, at an affordable price, and it didn't really achieve either of those goals. But a lot more Americans have access to health coverage right now. Which is great, especially from the perspective of uh, giving them financial relief from uh, medical expenses, which is a serious consideration. So we're still grappling with the rollout, obviously, of the ACA. Uh, the Trump administration has scaled it back a lot, particularly with the rollback of the penalties for the individual mandate as part of the 2017 tax cuts that got sort of dissolved. And we're still having challenges around which states are going to expand Medicaid or not. So. There's a lot, a lot to deal with when uh, there's policy, especially decades of policy.
0: So, why do you say access to health insurance doesn't make people healthier? Um, because it doesn't. I mean, this, you know, if
1: it did, uh, then our life expectancy wouldn't be dropping. So, over the past few years, uh, life expectancy in America, which has, you know, like I said earlier, such incredible ability to offer wonderful care, our life expectancy has been dropping, I think the last three or four years. We're getting much more obese. Right now, about seven out of 10 Americans are overweight or obese, which is a a real problem. I consider it probably the, the biggest health crisis we have in America because obesity correlates to pretty much every chronic disease there is, from dementia to high blood pressure to diabetes. So you know, if you're overweight, obese, you're just tracking yourself to be unhealthier later in life. It affects your quality of life. And, you know, we've had this expansion of access to health insurance and none of it has addressed these major issues. And the, the reason that health insurance doesn't make people healthier is because people don't use it in the way that policymakers expected that they would. And this is a funky fact, or, you know, just, you know, when you practice in the healthcare industry for a long time, you realize that people don't behave the way that they do in consumer or commercial environments in the rest of the world when something when prices are lowered on something then more people tend to buy it and when something's free people tend to access it and use it so economists often will say well we're going to provide primary care visits for free and so people will use them but you know we don't so the, the idea is that if people did use primary care uh, the way that they should, meaning going every year, having a wellness check for a physician to say to you, these are you know, you're overweight, you need to lose five or six pounds, here are some ways to do it. Maybe you want to think about getting off some of these meds, here are some suggestions, and you come back every year and you have this relationship with your doctor and they manage your care to keep you well. We don't use visits like that. I think one of the stats is about Uh, One in five visits to a primary care doctor is for a wellness check. And that actually may include uh, stats for children who have to go in order to get all their shots and everything so that they can go to school. So this idea that access to health insurance makes people healthier is a, a misnomer, I mean, the real purpose of it is, like I alluded to earlier, is to provide people with financial security in case there's a catastrophic event. They're not left on the hook to have to pay this gigantic hospital bill, which is the last thing they need to think about if they've had a a big health issue like that.
0: A single payer payer system such as what we see in other countries or a Medicare for all type system, um, that's something that's becoming increasingly talked about in the national dialogue. But is it the right answer for America? Why or why not?
1: Yeah, I definitely don't think that it is. In fact, there's a whole chapter in my book uh, called the, "You Know the Case Against the Single-Payer System," and I've launched a podcast called the Powers Report Podcast, and the the third show is about uh, about this issue in particular. Um, it's definitely been in the media. There's a difference between you know uh, a universal healthcare, a single-payer system, which is literally one payer, which is the Canada model, uh, and a Medicare for all, which is some government subsidization, and then, depending on which candidate you talk to, <laughs> um, uh, secondary insurance through the private sector. That model is used a lot in Europe. But the thing about trying to connect uh, what is being done in Europe and, and adopted over here in America is that we're nothing like European countries. We're really nothing like any other country in the world uh, on a variety of uh, metrics, one of which is size. We have 330 million people. Germany, which is the largest country in Europe, is about the qu- a quarter of the size of the United States. And we all know that it is uh, easier to manage something small than it is to manage something large. And once you get to a point where there's so much bureaucracy, you get to what's called diseconomies of scale, where all you're doing is adding layers of bureaucracy instead of finding efficiencies from these economies of scale. And I believe in a country that's the size of the United States, we've sort of hit that point. Uh, The other major difference between the US and a lot of other countries, and Japan is a great example of this, is that we're, we're so ethnically diverse, we're religiously diverse, we're geographically diverse. And you can't have a one-size-fits-all sort of uh, institutionalized healthcare approach to healthcare when there's so much diversity. Because healthcare is hyper-local and it is specific to your community, it's specific to your town, and that's because people behave like their neighbors. So when we think about what healthcare is like in Colorado is completely different than what it's like in Florida because of people's jobs, uh, what they do all day, their exercise habits. Uh, it's different than it would be in Texas, uh, and then you have you know just the interesting facts about ethnicity. When you think about the white community, um, we're you know mostly white, although it's it's shifting to sort of a minority majority, but. Um, the opioid crisis strikes the uh, white community much higher than it does in uh, other ethnicities. If you think about the African American community, diabetes is um strikes that community more than it does others. And for the Hispanic community, um the leading cause of death in America is cardiovascular disease. But for Hispanics, it's cancer. So just on those metrics alone, when you're thinking about, you know, how we're going to target, and match the healthcare needs to what people's specific requirements are, it's it's just too hard to institutionalize at that level. So I'm not a fan.
0: One of the biggest buzzwords in American healthcare in the last couple of years has been value-based care. Um, can you first define it? And then what are your thoughts on value-based care and all of the hype it's been getting?
1: Yeah, this is really important. Um, so value-based care has a couple of definitions. Uh, overall, the idea is that, uh, patients should get value for the money that is, um, being spent on their healthcare, the way it's been implemented. And a lot of this came down through the affordable care act. There were some, um, funds that were set aside for programs to develop this. The idea and a lot, and some of these ideas came out of Europe is that you can, um, look at a certain act like a, a, a hip replacement and say, You know, if we actually thought about the best way to do this collectively, instead of all the different ways that people do it around, do sort of a best practices approach, we could identify what the best outcomes would be for hip replacement. And we should be able to come up with a pretty good idea of what the costs are based on these best practices. And that's going to give the best value for the patient. And so that was really the impetus of this idea that we could somehow start to cluster different types of uh, medical events and put a capped payment on it, um, which is this value-based care payment. Sometimes it's called a bundled payment because the way the system works right now is what's called a fee-for-service model. Every time you go to a doctor, there's a charge for that. You have an x-ray, it's a charge for that. You get a pill, there's a charge for that. All of that sort of stuff is line itemed out, which is why our hospital bills look so crazy. Um, And the incentive around that is, okay, well, if I'm just going to get paid to, you know, order an x-ray, I'm just going to order an x-ray. You know, not unlike what happened with my daughter. I don't think that, you know, she's got a broken leg, but I'm going to order the x-ray anyway. That drives up a lot of unnecessary utilization and costs and stuff. And so value-based care is an attempt to tamp that down and attach practice with positive outcomes. So it's a really, really great idea. The problem with it is that, um, again, this gets back to variability. Trying to come up with what, how to measure quality outcomes, I think, has been one of the biggest stumbling blocks around this. Because, you know, a, a grandmother who broke a hip, her outcome, her positive outcome, is going to be something like, uh, you know, she can go up a flight of stairs. If you've got a professional athlete who breaks a hip, you know, they want to be back playing tournaments. Their, you know, their mobility and what they need to do is completely different, and so trying to set up an outcome based on or you know a metric based on that just in itself is really it's almost impossible. Not to mention the fact, and this is probably more the mechanical challenges of it is that our IT systems at hospitals, our technology systems, aren't set up for this sort of one stop billing, like a flat capitated, they call a capitated payment they're set up for the fee for service model which is a transaction oriented payment system so hospitals have spent billions of dollars installing these electronic medical records or emrs they're not going to turn around now and put in systems that can tolerate the the value based care model so that requires a lot of manual labor and it's just been it's it's been a real challenge which is why it has not been fully embraced and I think providers like the idea, um, but it does take a lot of workarounds to get to really implementing this. And it has not been, you know, we haven't been able to, to get this uh, implemented in the system the way I think people envisage that it would.
0: If value-based care or single payer aren't the right way to fix the skyrocketing healthcare costs in America, what is? Can you please explain what you call the longitudinal health care plan and your dream for American health care?
1: We have to, first of all, applaud folks who have promoted Medicare for all single payer and value based care because they're good ideas. And if we don't uh, try and implement these ideas and learn from them, we're never going to improve. So even though I don't support these ideas, I'm glad that people are coming up with new ideas. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about cost. I think the biggest other thing that we don't address in our American healthcare system, at least the way the payment system is structured, is personal accountability. We just do not have a system that motivates people to take accountability for their health, to take control of their health, and reward them for being healthy. And we need a system that connects what we're putting into the system, provides us some transparency with how our the money flow is. Uh, and also encourages us, incense us, to be healthy, and that's sort of the second half of my book with the longitudinal healthcare plan, and we can get a little more into that.
0: You divided the longitudinal healthcare plan into three modules. Let's talk a little bit about each one. Um, can you first explain the conditions timeline?
1: Yes, yeah, So there's actually, there's two parts of the longitudinal healthcare plan and there's three modules in each part. So the conditions timeline is one, sort of the first half of the longitudinal healthcare plan. And the idea is that um, we believe, that I believe, that we should be able to project all the diseases and conditions that an individual will develop over the course of their lifetime. That's what I call a conditions timeline. And the modules in the conditions timeline, are these are really like the three things that you would do, the three data sets that you collect. One of them is a physical exam. So, you know, that's just going to the doctor, getting your vitals, uh, all that sort of stuff. That's sort of where you are right now. That information would feed into this model to make this projection. On the flip side, we do a genetic workup. So, there's been a lot of talk about um, genetic testing. This is a really, really exciting area that we're sort of just scratching the surface on. And I think with genetic testing, we have to be careful of what it actually tells us. So, in the longitudinal healthcare plan, obviously, it's a, it's a baseline piece of information that will explain to our developers, um, you know is this person likely to develop Parkinson's? Do they have cancer in their family? If so, what kind? You know, how strong is is the potential for them to develop cancer? You know, these sorts of things are potentialities. So we'd capture all of that. But I think the most important thing to collect are these external determinants of health. And that's the third module uh, or one of the third that we're talking about. And when you think about health outcomes, about 80% of our health outcomes are not determined by whether we have health insurance or not. They're determined by these external determinants of health. And these are the things like where we live, what our education level is, what our behaviors are. If we're sleeping, do we smoke? Are we exercising? Are we eating right? Do we have stress in our lives? These are the factors that are going to determine what health outcomes we're going to have So if you combine your genetics, which are your, you know, baseline proclivities with your behaviors and all these external determinants, and then say, and right now, you know, you're this age and weigh this much and all the, you know, this is how your blood work is, we should be able to get a a pretty good look at what is going to happen to you over the course of your life. So that is the conditions timeline. And I would add that it is not a static measurement that... Uh, in the longitudinal health plan, we'd want our customers to come back every year because every time you go back for a physical, you know, your body changes and we need to capture that. And of course, so many things happen in your life that these external determinants are going to change too. And they have significant impacts on what's going to happen to you over the course of your life. So we need to always be updating this conditions timeline.
0: Can we talk about the financial commitment piece? Yeah. So I I think this is the
1: exciting aspect of the longitudinal healthcare plan. I think we all get that genetics and stuff can really help us make these projections, but we have yet in the healthcare industry to connect our behaviors with our financial output. And if we've made this projection, which we will uh, through these condition timelines, you sort of nullify the need for health insurance you nullify this need to pay a third party for your health care because you already know what you're going to get which is pretty exciting so i you know often say why insure yourself against cancer if you know you're not going to get it uh, so instead of paying into an insurance company or a third party like the government for medicare you'd pay yourself you'd pay into what i call a longitudinal health care plan or an lhcp and the money that you would be putting into premiums, in fact, what your employer would be putting into uh, insurance, paying to insurance companies for your health care, that should go into your longitudinal health care plan. All of these out-of-pocket costs, all the, co- you know, these things that you would ordinarily budget to go off somewhere in some mystical financial maze that somehow pays for health care, it'd be so much more direct and it would go directly into your uh, your plan. So, as part of the financial um, aspect of the longitudinal healthcare plan, we'd come up with clinical protocols, and so these would be sort of the how do you, it's sort of like how do you like your healthcare? Some people really like to go to the doctor a lot. They like to take medication. They're very bullish on surgery. Uh, you know, those come with different costs and different clinical models than somebody who's more into a naturopathic. Approach and likes acupuncture and prefers to use herbal, you know, approaches instead of medication. Um, and obviously, when we develop these clinical protocols, we need to make sure that folks aren't, you know, avoiding chemo, chemotherapy when we know that that's really the best uh, way for them to treat cancer if they should get it. Um, but we want to tailor. The healthcare that folks are going to be paying for to what they like, because if they're more engaged, they're going to be healthier, and their, um, you know, their outcomes are going to be much better. So we come up with these clinical protocols, and then we attach the cost to them and say, okay, well, you know, if this is what it's going to take and how you want to treat your potential dementia, then this is how much it's going to cost. And then once we have that timeline laid out, we can then do an investment plan. That tells our customers how much they're going to need to save over the course of their lives to fund all of this care. And I should note that um, they would pay directly to providers. So there's none of this funky negotiated rate stuff. It's, you know, provider says it costs $15,000 for a knee replacement. That's what the market pays. That's what everybody pays. And that's what you pay directly to the provider out of your longitudinal health care plan. So that's the
0: financial part. What about the uh, consumer action report?
1: Yeah. So, this is the neat part that sort of sums all of it up and says, um, and this is something we go over with our patients every year. Or I call them customers because uh, we're not going to be really on the clinical side doing this. But this sums everything up and says, well, you know, here's your timeline, here's what you're looking at, here's how much it's going to cost. Uh, and as you come back every year, we can say, hey, if you lose 10 pounds, Uh, Because you've come back, you've gained some weight. If you lose 10 pounds, then um, the heart attack that we said that you were going to get when you're 65, you know, uh, maybe if you lose the 10 pounds, it'll come back. It it may come later and you'll save X amount of money. And here's what you can do to go lose the weight. Here are some ideas. And we can refer you out to the type of care that is going to work for you. And it just gives some guidance around how to motivate yourself and incent yourself to be healthier and then attaches the cost to doing that.
0: There are a lot of different models out there that get proposed to transform and fix American healthcare. How does, how does LHCP differ from those models?
1: Um, well, I don't think there's any model that is, uh, thinks that health insurance is going to be obsolete. And that's the most exciting aspect of this because it it radically changes how we think about the healthcare system. It changes uh, how hospitals perform, how doctors perform. I mean, you, you have to sort of understand that Medicare is the biggest payer in America. And that's, again, the program for individuals 65 and older. And as a result, um, Medicare will tell doctors and will tell hospitals – you know, for this type of procedure, we will pay you to do this, this, and this, and we're not going to pay you to do that. And a patient can only come eight times, not ten, eight. Uh, and you know, it'll outline all of these things. In uh, and that's all driven by insurance. And then when Medicare makes these statements, a lot of insurance companies will follow. And if they don't follow, they'll come up with their own approach and you know have their own clinical protocols that they'll pay for. And that just has driven up costs in the system. You know, it's, it's been a major contributor to some of our problems. And again, it doesn't match what patients need. You know, it, it's basically saying this is what your insurance is going to cover. When you get insurance out of the way, then you can design the protocols that people want. They are costed out at a, at a point that makes sense because you know, you're only giving people the care that they want. And you know, we definitely are going to have to watch out and have some regulatory control over doctors who may be over prescribing, uh, or over medicating on the flip side, I think the market is going to ensure that when that happens, people are going to tell each other, you know, Dr. Smith did all this stuff and billed me for all these things. And, you know, I didn't need them. I didn't want, you know, and that's going to get back to the market. And then Dr. Smith is not going to command the rates that he wanted. And the market's going to sort of tune out Dr. Smith. Um, and I'd like to see a lot more of that. I'd like to see people a lot more involved in their care and this is just a completely different way to look at it.
0: You say that traditional health insurance is obsolete. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, traditional health insurance versus LHCP in the examples of primary care, chronic care, and catastrophic care?
1: Yeah. So in the book, I have this spectrum. I think of functional benefits of what health insurance provides, and you know, I think most of what health insurance is today is really coverage because uh, we're not really insuring, but if you think about you know prime, the, the, the spectrum that you talked about going from primary care to catastrophic care, it's basically primary care visits are high volume, inexpensive uh, visits that uh, encounters in the healthcare system. Catastrophic events are very low incident, high cost events. And there's different ways to look at each of these things. And I think they should be insured or we should be paying for them in different ways. Because primary care is, it's really important, but it's pretty inexpensive. I mean, to go see a doctor, there are minute clinics, and this is not for the, you know, the, the wellness check, which I think is, costs a little more money because it's more time and more tests. But, you know, if you're, if you've got that flu and you, you just need, you know, you think you need some antibiotics, you just need to go to the doctor, it, it only, it, it costs less than a hundred bucks to go to a minute clinic. That stuff really, to me, should be out of pocket, you know, straight to provider payments, When you talk about chronic care, and this is a big issue in the healthcare system because as I mentioned earlier, we've got so many folks who are obese and overweight and they've got all these what are called comorbidities where they have multiple chronic diseases and that contributes huge percentages of healthcare costs or for people with chronic diseases. The thing is, if you know you have arthritis, you don't need insurance I mean, if you know you're going to need to be on Humera for the rest of your life, you just need to budget for whatever Humira costs. And my view on chronic care is that it is something that is repetitive and uh, is a cost that is incurred regularly. And so instead of putting the money into a pool when you already know it's, a, it's an expense you're going to have, from my perspective and in the longitudinal health care plan, we just budget for it. We just budget for it. Um, and then the catastrophic stuff, I'm glad you brought this up, you know, we're not going to be able to predict everything. So, you know, there are going to be events struck by lightning, fell down, hit your head in a way, and, you know, you've got this terrible contusion and, you know, that sort of stuff you're going to need insurance for, and that's legitimate insurance. And to me, that's it's not insurance like, we're going to cover your hospital expenses at this hospital for this, and we're going to cover, you know, this potential, it's just a dollar figure. Um, you know, you can insure yourself for a million bucks. And then if something happens per that plan, you just get your money. And then again, you can go pay the providers, you can use it for home care. And what's great is it's it's transferable. So if you have an accident in another state, another country, you know, you get your money to pay for your care to make sure that your you know, all your needs are taken care of and you don't have to tangle with, you know, interstate rules and all that sort of stuff for coverage.
0: What is the business case for the longitudinal healthcare plan?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, element of this. And in the book, I have a chapter around this. And subsequently, I've done some other analyses around the business case. And the, the real question is, and what I mean by business case is, you know, can Americans self-fund their care? And this is a really scary idea because we don't do it right now. We're so shielded from understanding where our dollars go. And we think, oh my God, if I get cancer, then I can't afford it. Well, somehow you're affording it right now. I mean, if we're not paying for our health insurance, if we're not paying for our healthcare, you know, where's the money coming from? And healthcare expenses are so skewed to a few people that, you know, if you take those people out of the equation- then the the average American should be able to pay for their own care. A recent study that I just came across from the Kaiser Peterson Foundation says that the top 1% of health spenders spend 22% of the dollars. So if you start to pull those folks out and look at everybody else, we should be able to cover our own care costs. In the book, I look at it a little differently. And what I did in the book was try to estimate what all our uh, out-of-pocket costs were for healthcare and sort of do an average person- And think about everything that they paid into the healthcare system. So that would be their insurance premiums, what their employer pays. That sort of pay is paid on behalf of them, but that goes into the system. They pay payroll taxes for Medicare. That goes into the system. And then I included some budgetary guidelines that people, you know, how much they budget of their out of pocket spend that goes into healthcare. And that's for the deductibles and stuff like that. And then some retirement money um, because it, big chunk of retirement spending is for healthcare. And I sort of added all that up. And then I looked at what we spend per capita on healthcare, which is the healthcare costs in the system right now, assuming the weird utilization we have and the skyrocketing prices that we have. And if you look at what somebody puts into the system and what we spend, they're almost equal, So if you think, well, included in that average per capita number are these super-duper high spenders who, and if they're very ill, they're going to be on public health. They're going to be on Medicaid. You know, if they're pulled out of the system, what the average person puts in should be more than what's spent on them. And then if we think about the fact that we have all this overutilization, which was the whole point of value-based care, was to try and get rid of this fee-for-service model. Um, And if we change our behavior and we become more healthy- then our costs should come down. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that this financially can work. And as, you know, I begin to to work more on this, which we'll get to, um, you know, we'll be able to better articulate that.
0: In your dream system, how would the poor or indigent or people who are on or who are traditionally on Medicaid be covered? uh, And how would it be paid for and by whom?
1: Yeah. So there's an interesting, one of these quadrants, uh, quadrant analyses in the book that has on one axis, your relative health. So you're either pretty healthy or you go to pretty sick, and then your relative wealth. So you're either not all that wealthy or you're wealthy. And right now, I think the longitudinal healthcare plan, this this model, when it's rolled out, is obviously going to roll out to the early adapters who are traditionally healthier and wealthier. Um, you know, these are the people who buy the iPhones and all the prices come down. They're the people who bought cars and all the prices come down. And this model needs to be proven in the, the private sector. Um, and so we're going to start off with folks like that. But I think as the model gets proven, people who are less healthy and less wealthy are going to be able to um, get into the program and it should, it should work for them. I definitely think and would encourage our, you know, as, as this gets rolled out, I would encourage us to look at folks who would traditionally be considered to be on Medicaid because of their income level. There are a lot of folks who are actually healthy, who could potentially get off Medicaid and get into a program like this just because of their health status. Um, And there are a lot of other financing ideas in the book that would enable folks to sort of get out of the public health program. But if you can't pay for your care, uh, you're ultimately going to fall into a public health pool, and I think the smaller the pool is, per my comments earlier about Medicare for all, you know, the better it is to manage it, um, and that's going to get funded through taxes. I think we have a responsibility as Americans to help each other out and to care for people who, uh, you know, aren't as well off as we are. Um, so I, I think that's how that will happen. But, and that's not much different than it is today. But I think generationally, as this model gets rolled out, I think one of the cool aspects of it is, is that basically imagine a lifetime's worth of clinical protocols that have been collected for somebody who has a certain genetic profile, who lives in a certain geography, who's a certain sex, who has certain characteristics of somebody who might actually be very low income. And we could say, so this is this is sort of your profile. This is what the average American like you paid for for their own health. So instead of the government saying this is what it should be and this is what we're going to pay for and instead of physicians just saying we're going to order these tests do this stuff, it's it's a very democratized way of looking at how public funding should be structured. And again, this is, you know, down the line But I think it's a fascinating way to be able to take these longitudinal health care plans and use them as models for how we could structure public health funding. I think that would be a really cool way to provide people care that's reflective of what other Americans who have their profiles paid for for themselves.
0: How realistic do you think it is that the longitudinal health care plan be adapted and in what kind of a timeline? And what are some of the big hurdles in the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) the biggest hurdle, obviously, is the insurance lobby. So uh, I'm not kidding myself here. And there's really two chapters in the book around the challenges of that. You know, that said, companies who would offer longitudinal health care plans are probably going to be insurance companies because they've got all this great data. And I would be very surprised if they haven't realized that the writings on the wall With uh, you know the products that they're bringing to the American people, I don't think they're going to be happy about the fact that something like this uh, may not be as profitable for them. But I would think that they may be uh, rolling these things out. But they're going to object long and hard and loud. And you know we're just going to have to deal with that challenge. From a financial perspective, I think the biggest challenge is getting access to that employer sponsored. Subsidy for health insurance. Like I said earlier, half of Americans get their health insurance uh, through their employer, and it is a significant component of uh, premiums. So, if you're single, uh, your employer pays around eighty percent of the premiums to your uh, to the insurance company. It's a little lower for a family. That's a big amount of money, and people rely on it right now. We just don't think we don't realize that we do, but we do, and finding a way to uh, allow employers and encourage them to put these funds over into these longitudinal healthcare plans and getting the regulations propped up around that is going to be a challenge. Because right now they there are some tax exemptions to doing it, but you know employers can't just go give the, the money to employees to do whatever they want with it. Um, so we'd have to get around that. And then finally, and critically, there's just public perception. We right now as a American community, I think have lost our connection, uh, you know, lost our motivation to be really personally responsible about our health. And that is the heart and soul of the longitudinal healthcare plan. And this is really so important to its success. You have to want to be healthy and want to manage your health. And that is a complete shift from how things happen right now. I think culturally, it's been getting harder for us to think like that, Uh, you know, and this, you know, one of the most popular aspects of the Affordable Care Act was this prohibition of insurers from discriminating against potential enrollees based on their pre-existing conditions. So you can't do that anymore. If you've had cancer before, an an insurer can't deny you coverage, which is awesome. You know, it's great. This gave access to health insurance to people who hadn't had it before. And this was a group of people who really needed it. But what it's done, conversely, is it's also putting, you know, folks' minds, whether they realize it or not, that it doesn't really matter what I have, because I'm going to get covered. Why should I bother being healthy? Because no one's going to ask. I'm just going to get coverage, and that, ironically, is the completely wrong incentive to have. So there's a, you know, a mentality shift um, that's going to be essential, and a, a real embrace. You know, we've got to embrace wellness much, much more um, as an American community.
0: If you could give one piece of closing advice for patients, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, what would it be?
1: I think we need to get a better understanding of the actual costs of care. One of the key parts of the longitudinal healthcare plan is that uh, our customers are going to pay providers directly for care. Doing that requires providers to actually understand what their true healthcare costs are. And, um, you know, this is a a very complicated way that the healthcare system works, but basically hospitals, their financing is so complicated and reimbursement is so varied and they get funds from, like I said, disproportionate share, they get grants, they get donations. It's really hard for them and they have not done a good job of true cost accounting, of understanding a patient comes in for this, uh, for, you know, a hernia operation And if we allocated down all the administrative costs to that procedure and all of the facilities costs associated with that, and then all the variable costs around staffing and supplies and all that, here's how much it would be. The healthcare industry doesn't do that. And I've practiced a lot in the outpatient uh, arena for the past five years or so. And that is a great area where folks can get a real handle on what costs are because it's sort of a closed system and it's smaller. And I would really encourage folks to get a better handle on these costs because when as you know, reimbursement is coming down because of crunches in healthcare, insurers are paying less, Medicare, Medicaid are paying less. And unless hospitals and providers really understand how much stuff costs, they can't be in a position to negotiate for their rates and they can't do the best job that they should be doing in figuring out how to cut costs, which they definitely need to be doing. So I I would definitely put a focus on what real costs are.
0: Well, Janice, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now?
1: Um, well, I've enjoyed this conversation and uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy to respond to folks because I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, and as a result, I've actually started a company called Longitudinal Healthcare to bring the ideas in this book to life. And part of that is a, a podcast I've started called the Powers Report Podcast. They're sort of like... Um, They're like TED Talks. They're about 20 20 minutes long. It's just me talking. So instead of uh, me interviewing somebody, I talk about a specific topic in healthcare. I'm working on one uh, right now about hospitals and hospital costs. I've talked about the single payer system. I mentioned that earlier. I have talked about obesity. So I hit on a lot of topics. I have a lot of sources. I have put a transcript online. Of the entire podcast, you have to, you know, pardon small errors uh, in talking in grammar. But I've made sure to put hyperlinks out so folks can get an understanding of real where really good data comes from. That is part of my effort in conjunction with longitudinal healthcare to start educating folks about the healthcare system because it is so confusing, provide some original perspectives, provide provocative ideas and uh, provide folks with data so they can go understand the research and um, appreciate the amount of research and all that sort of stuff that's gone into a lot of these ideas. Um, I am in the throes of raising money for longitudinal healthcare to bring this product out to market, and, you know, if you're an investor, (laughs) please contact me. But I think this is a really fascinating idea. Uh, I've been working on the plan to bring it to life for about six months or so, and I've got a roadmap on how to do that because it is pretty complicated. But as we discussed earlier, you know, if you know what the challenges are to bringing something to life, you know, you just make a plan and try and overcome them and know that there'll be others out there waiting for you. So we'll, we'll address all of those. But I am committed to uh, bringing about the obsolescence of health insurance.
0: That sounds great. Janice, I want to thank you again so much for being on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having
1: me.